You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Twitter's transparency efforts see through accounts being run by Chinese, Russian, and Turkish actors. Zoom is working to both comply with Chinese law and contain the reputational damage involved in doing so. Industrial firms recover from Ekin's infestations. Caleb Barlow from Synergistech on how hospital CISOs are dealing with the COVID-19 situation. Our guest is Ronald Eddings from Palo Alto Networks and the Hacker Valley Studio podcast on strategies for finding and managing security architects. And it's not Posh Spice who got the attention of Mays, it's just her M&A advisors. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, June 12, 2020. Social media continued to work toward transparency, and this seems to be an easier and arguably more productive approach to controlling disinformation than direct content moderation so far appears to be. Twitter this morning has called out three state-run influence campaigns, all with a domestic focus. Twitter has identified a large number of state-run accounts pushing disinformation. The largest network was Chinese-controlled, 23,750 core accounts that were highly active in distributing Beijing's line on various issues, with special attention given to matters affecting Hong Kong. A large number of amplifier accounts, about 150,000, repeated the core account's traffic. The content was for the most part in Chinese and evidently addressed to a largely domestic audience. Twitter says that despite the account's high level of activity, they enjoyed relatively few followers and had achieved little traction. Twitter also identified 1,152 Russian accounts associated with the current policy state-run news site. These were engaged in distributing messages favoring the Russia United Party in an influence campaign directed toward domestic audiences. Also interested in domestic influence were 7,340 accounts in Turkey whose line favored President Erdogan and the AK Party. The Telegraph and others report that Zoom, having locked out account holders after they held online discussions commemorating the 31st anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, is drawing criticism for aligning its services with Chinese policy. The Wall Street Journal notes that the activist group affected, San Francisco-based humanitarian China, had its account quietly restored after the suspension was reported by Axios. The company has said it pulled the accounts in compliance with local laws, that is, with Chinese law. 
Zoom has also expressed its regrets and said it, quote, will not allow requests from the Chinese government to impact anyone outside of mainland China, end quote. The company intends to do this by upgrading its systems to permit it to identify the locations of meeting participants and selectively blocking them on the basis of where they were. So, if you were looking to join from Kalamazoo or Pocatello, or for that matter, from Scunthorpe, you'd be good to go. From Shenzhen? Sorry, no remote conferencing for you. Foreseeably, many critics remain unmollified, asking with Security Boulevard, is Zoom the next Huawei? That's strong, but as Security Boulevard's blog watch summarizes, Zoom may be headquartered in San Jose and listed on the NASDAQ, but the firm does have significant operations in China, including a large engineering staff and a practice of routing users' traffic through servers in that country. Zoom's security issues drew attention, along with the company's swift rise during the COVID-19-driven increase in telework. The Snake, or Ekans ransomware strain, which Dragos characterized in its study as having a primitive but distinct capability to hold industrial processes at risk, in addition to its more conventional capability against business systems, has been implicated in recent attacks on Honda. Bloomberg Law reports that Honda has begun resuming production in its Ohio plants and elsewhere after Sunday's computer incident. But according to Bleeping Computer, another firm, European power company Enel Group, has disclosed that it's also been hit by Snake, the same ransomware that disrupted Honda. The company's disclosure is belated, Enel says it detected a ransomware infestation on June 7th, but that by Monday it had successfully contained the attack and brought its systems back online. The firm's statement read in part that, quote, no critical issues have occurred concerning the remote control systems of its distribution assets and power plants, and that customer data have not been exposed to third parties. Temporary disruptions to customer care activities could have occurred for a limited time, caused by the temporary blockage of the internal IT network, end quote. In both cases, the identification of Snake, Ekans, as the ransomware involved came from outside researchers, not the affected companies themselves. By the way, a quick note, it's been brought to my attention by a kind listener that the correct pronunciation is Ekans and not Ekans, as I was saying earlier. Evidently, it's a Pokemon thing, and I appreciate the correction. And finally, one other ransomware attack has been reported. In this case, the culprit is known, or at least a culprit has claimed responsibility. InfoSecurity magazine says that Threadstone Advisors, a New York firm that specializes in consulting on mergers and acquisitions, has been hit with ransomware. As is the fashion with up-to-date ransomware, the extortionists claim to have stolen data before they encrypted information in Threadstone's possession. A note of clarification... A lot of the coverage of the Threadstone incident has mentioned one of their famous clients, Victoria Beckham. But the attack was against Threadstone itself, not Ms. Beckham. So you can rest easy. What IT infrastructure Posh Spice maintains herself, as far as we know, is still up and humming. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is Ronald Eddings. He's a security architect leader at Palo Alto Networks and the co-host of the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. He shares his strategies for finding and managing security architects. There's a lot of thoughts about what a security architect is and what is security architecture. And it's really the security controls, the policies and guidelines that assist an organization with protecting their data and protecting their users and really their entire organization. Well, I mean, let's let's come at that together and unpack it. How does that uh, come to fruition in the real world? Yeah. So I always like to kind of give an example. And I say, imagine that you're a CEO of a company that designs and builds buildings. And your newest client, they hire you to build a bank. Your team, they would need to understand how to build a building that creates a positive experience for the bank staff and the customers. But most importantly, your team would need to understand how to build and design a building with security in mind to protect the crown jewels, which is money. And security Mm -hmm. architects, we have similar goals and face similar challenges that an architect designing a bank would face, but from a technology perspective. I mean, is that process a bit of a journey in itself? Do, do you often find that folks may not have a good grasp on exactly what all aspects of the organization really need? Yeah, and that's one of the most challenging parts of being a security architect is constantly working with stakeholders, working with directors and leadership to understand what does the organization need. And that also has to relate back to the analysts and engineers that are going to be implementing or maintaining that body of work. It all has to uh, work out for everyone within the organization. What uh, makes a good security architect? What are the, uh, what are the, the personality aspects, the skills and so forth that, uh, that make someone a good fit for this particular job? Security architects can be a little synonymous with a few other positions. And the other positions that it's somewhat synonymous with is solutions architect, Uh, senior security engineer, and sometimes even head of security. And 
typically the the hero's journey behind these types of individuals is they've served their time working as an analyst, working as an engineer, and they've accrued a lot of information to start to begin to understand the high-level needs of security for an organization. So a lot of the architects that I work with today, they have a background and a history of security engineering, uh, working in SOCs, and sometimes even leading and managing teams that deal with security. How much of the work that you do involves diplomacy, of, of serving as that, that translation layer between the, the various parts of an organization that all have their specific needs and desires? It's a lot like playing a game of tower defense. Uh, I'm using uh, requirements, users, and technology to create a secure environment. So there's a lot of translation I have to do for stakeholders that are, that are the ones uh, really supporting a project. And there's a lot of translation I have to do for the engineers to understand the requirements that need to be implemented and the, the real importance behind them. So I'm, all, I'm constantly playing a, t- a game of tower defense and moving pieces around and asking more questions, going back to the game and, you know, moving really in my situation as technology. It's, it's security controls, it's applications and hardware. So I'm constantly moving these components around to fit needs. Sometimes when I move an application or a control from uh, one place to another, or I create one from scratch, it could cause a negative impact on the business. And that's a problem. So that's another thing that security architects have to keep in mind is how can I implement this secure process that's going to help the organization while not impeding business operations? You know, as someone in, in a leadership position, when you're out there uh, providing mentorship for folks who are coming up in the organization, um, what sort of tips do you have for folks who are pursuing a career and perhaps want to be a security architect? That's a great question. And the nuggets and wisdom that I would give anyone that's interested in being a security architect is explore and be curious. There's a lot of aspects of security. And to be a security architect, you really have to have a holistic view on the threat and security landscape. You have to understand a bit about networking, a bit about cloud solutions, and also a bit about endpoint security. There's uh, just so many topics to cover. And I think the best way and the best strategy to get closer to becoming a security architect is just by becoming more curious about all the technologies that exist and all the technologies that need to be secured. Our thanks to Ronald Eddings for joining us. If you want to hear an extended version of this interview, head on over to thecyberwire.com. You can find it there in the CyberWire Pro section. If you've not checked out the Hacker Valley Studio podcast, I recommend it. It's worth your time. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. 
That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Caleb Barlow. He is the CEO at Synergistech. Uh, Caleb, always great to have you back. Um, I was hoping you could share some insights with us. Um, you have a unique view inside many healthcare organizations right now, and I was hoping you could share with us what's going on behind the scenes. Well, Dave, as you can imagine, look, these are unprecedented times. And if we look at what's happening, particularly with CISOs, which is largely the audience here, it varies greatly amongst institutions. Most CISOs in hospitals are not clinicians. There are a few that are. And of course, you can imagine if they're clinicians, they've really been called to the front lines in this. But not only have the CISOs likely left the hospital and are working from home, but also dozens, if not hundreds of non-clinical workers uh, are working from home, are you know enabled with, uh, in a lot of cases, BYOD. One of the real challenges they're dealing with is routing phone calls, um, mm. you know, because you can imagine every hospital has a very robust uh, phone system, and it was never designed to have people working remotely in most cases. So communication's becoming a bit of a difficulty. But also when we get into individual systems, depending on whether or not they have COVID patients, we're seeing really different types of activities as well as kind of new vulnerabilities that are emerging. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, even just the the bringing of new or additional devices online within, say, a hospital itself, as they're shifting the pattern of treatment and preparing for what could be a, a, a rush of uh, patients, um, how does that play out on the ground there? Well, the, the most important thing for a hospital is, I mean, their crown jewels is the EHR, the electronic healthcare records. And in most cases, especially if you see temporary facilities getting stood up, or people suddenly working from home, uh, this is a getting extended through various tools like laptops and iPads, in some cases, BYOD devices, and they're leveraging the remote access features usually of the EHR. And you know, so this certainly gets easier if their EHR is cloud-based, but the challenge is that in many, and I would probably venture to say most healthcare institutions, they're missing what I call the big three, network segmentation, endpoint detection, and they probably have some multi-factor, but it's not necessarily widely deployed. So any security professional listening to this podcast realizes that that, you know, not only has the threat landscape grown, but the threat, the attack surface has grown just, you know, in a very significant way in just a matter of weeks. Is it uh, reasonable to say that uh, the security folks may be appropriately put to the side at the moment while doctors are trying to save lives? Well, I, I think that is a is a reasonably accurate depiction. Um, now, that being said, that doesn't mean the concern level isn't rising. You know, as we've seen this, uh, you know, in some cases, they're literally standing up, you know, additional hospitals and tents, extending EHR into the parking lot. And, you know, that brings with it a significant concern along with, you know, increases in phishing attacks and the fact that it's going to be a whole lot easier to get your way into any institution today with everybody working from home. Now, we haven't seen a real rise in ransomware yet. In fact, if anything, we've seen a decline. Uh, if you go back to 2019, it was pretty much every week, either a state, local government or a, you know, decent sized hospital was getting locked up with ransomware. 
there's been very little of that activity. Now, that being said, we do see tons of the precursor of that activity. If anything, that's probably on the rise. So the concern here of a lot of CISOs is they don't want this to happen on their watch. You know, when a hospital is impacted by ransomware, they have really no choice but to divert patients. And the last thing we need to see is that happening in the middle of this crisis. So I, I would say, yes, they're um, operating a little bit on the sidelines today. In many cases, they're part of the incident response and kind of command center teams. But the, the worry level is growing. And, you know, I think there is time to shore up some defenses, but it means people need to move a lot faster than normal. And, and that then brings us to the challenge of budget. Well, let's uh, let's talk about that. Where do we stand when it comes to being able to pay for these things? Well, there's actually a bigger problem, and and that is that you have to realize that not all hospitals. I mean, funding levels across hospitals varies differently. Like children's hospitals are typically very well funded through donations and things like that. Uh, academic medical centers often have you know large size endowments, but you know you get into more regional hospitals, and you know in many cases they're nonprofits. Um, you even have Nowadays, you even have for-profit publicly traded hospitals. Well, you know, the medical industry as a whole doesn't run with very large margins. And we're now in a situation where pretty much every institution has been told to implement their emergency plan, which means stopping elective procedures, moving as many patients as possible out of the hospital for anything that was elective, and being prepared to handle the influx of COVID-19 patients. Well, challenge is, you know, you're not billing for all those lucrative services that you normally were. In fact, you're not even conducting that work. Um, in addition to that, you've got this onslaught of additional costs as you kind of prepare and ramp up for COVID-19. We've even seen, even in the last week or two, several hospitals starting to lay off or furlough workers. And, you know, this becomes a kind of a perfect storm where you've got increases in costs, increase in the threat level, at the same time, you know, you're eating through your cash reserves. Now, there is the hope of stimulus funding coming in to really help in this. But of course, when and how is that allocated? What can you spend it on? Really puts these CISOs in a very tough position. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's a sort of a, a ghoulish play on words, but it really is kind of an unmasking of our system of uh, sort of revealing where the cracks are as we uh, go on, go through this stress test. It is, but I do think that forward-leading CISOs, there's a lot they can do. You know, I think, generally speaking, the healthcare community has not has been as close to their vendors as, let's say, the financial services community, and that's just kind of a cultural thing. But, mm. you know, the reality here is that many, if not all vendors, are willing to step forward. There's lots of offers for free services or capabilities and I, I do think there are ways that smart CISOs can navigate through this storm. Um, but what they're going to need to do is not only shore up their defenses, but, you know, frankly, also kind of make sure their, their incident response plans are in place. Uh, and I'll tell you, one of the biggest things we've been looking at, and, and now, now let's fast forward, Dave, six months or so, right? Let's say we're on the other side of this. Now, my company, we go do assessments for hospitals. We It's required you know, they have to assess their security posture. And here's the thing. The way I would assess one of these institutions three weeks from now versus three weeks prior is totally different because both the threat landscape and the attack surface has completely changed. And that's really going to change how people have to approach things. Yeah. 
All right. Well, Caleb Barlow, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Thank you.